Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is a very special episode where we're going to cover the new article series by Dr. Derek Miles. Derek Miles is a physical therapist working in the sports medicine division at Stanford University, and he wrote a multi-part series on resistance training for the youth population. So on this episode, I'll actually read the article to you and get some additional feedback from Dr. Derek Miles himself, and we can put this into context. We'll start at the beginning. Resistance Training for the Youth Population by Dr. Derek Miles. This series will analyze current evidence for training the general youth populations as well as for those who already consider themselves athletes. We will give a historical perspective on the state of strength conditioning in youth and offer recommendations for training individuals and teams. These recommendations will serve as the basis for developing strength and athletic potential. Each sport involves unique constraints and, consequently, demands certain skill sets. What is undeniable is the role that physical strength plays in a wide variety of sports and its utility in overall physical fitness. We will start with a discussion of the current status quo and build an argument for where programming needs to go. Part 1. Current State of Affairs A dogmatic approach to resistance training in the youth population has hindered the progression of a scientific consensus for decades. Axioms such as resistance training stunts growth and resistance training damages adolescent growth plates have stymied proper study methodology and forced an over-reliance on expert opinion. Fortunately, the past 20 years have seen a slow shift away from that approach as these axioms have fallen in the research literature. We now have evidence-based recommendations that advocate resistance training for the current and long-term health of the youth and adolescent populations. In the 2014 International Consensus Position on Youth Resistance Training, Lloyd et al. went so far as to state, misinformed concerns that resistance training would be harmful to the developing skeleton have been replaced by reports indicating childhood may be the opportune time to build bone mass and enhance bone structure by participating in weight-bearing physical activities. In fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics released a 2008 position statement dispelling the myth of detrimental effects from resistance training while promoting the positive outcomes emerging in the literature. This piece presented three arguments. Argument number one, resistance training should be an essential component of the preparatory training for aspiring athletes. Argument number two, participation in resistance training earlier in life correlates with participation later in life. And argument number three, individuals who do not participate in resistance training are likely at an increased risk of negative consequences. To the first point, that resistance training should be an essential component of preparatory training for aspiring athletes, the American Academy of Pediatrics argues, developing the technical skill and competency to perform a variety of resistance training exercises at the appropriate intensity and volume while providing youth an opportunity to participate in programs that are safe, effective, and enjoyable. This statement has multiple components that deserve further discussion. Technical skill and competency come with routine practice. In his book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell popularized the theory that it takes approximately 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to master a skill. This idea was based on a 1993 study by Anders Ericsson titled The Role of Deliberate Practice in the Acquisition of Expert Performance. While the so-called 10,000-hour rule is likely flawed for multiple reasons, the author has actually refuted Gladwell's claim, waiting until early adulthood to begin to develop technical skills is likely placing the population at an increased risk of the negative consequences mentioned. However, it should be noted that this is not making a case for early sports specialization, as will be discussed later, but rather a case for beginning to develop skills earlier in life. 
A 2018 study by Henriksen et al. found that among a cohort of 1.2 million Swedish males, being unfit, weak, and obese was associated with an increased risk of disability. The original cohort of this study was 16- to 19-year-old males. Another study from Varma et al. in 2017 compared physical activity of individuals across a lifespan using accelerometer data. They found that on average, today's 16-year-olds participate in about the same amount of physical activity as today's 60-year-olds. Accelerometer data is not without flaws, as it does a poor job of measuring resistance training, but this study is damning for the overall physical activity habits of the general population today. Current World Health Organization recommendations for youth aged 5 to 17 years is to engage in 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity each day. Systematic reviews and meta-analysis on the subject evaluating participation in physical education class shows we are falling well short of that measure. For example, using an accelerometer data, Hollis et al. showed elementary students met that standard only 50% of the time, while Fairclough and Stratton found an even lower participation at 34.2%. This same trend carries on through secondary school, where only 40.5% of the physical education class achieved the moderate to vigorous intensity activity threshold. So while healthcare providers and trainers are frequently exposed to the perspective of an athlete who is overtraining, we must be mindful that as a whole, the adolescent population is grossly undertrained. The current American College of Sports Medicine recommendation for the implementation of resistance training is two to three times per week in the adult population. In a 2016 review by Dankel et al., only 18.3% of individuals met this criteria. But among those who did, a 23% reduction in all-cause mortality was observed. With that in mind, consider that we have people purchasing supplements with no evidential support or possible single-digit effects on mortality, while there is evidence that the addition of resistance training can generate double-digit effects on mortality. The reasons why resistance training has not been adopted more readily are multifactorial, as we will begin to discuss. Early Sports Specialization The American Academy of Pediatrics position statement on resistance training advocates for a variety of resistance training exercises. However, we are faced with two epidemics. Either one, no resistance training, or two, a continued push of specificity of training early in the youth population. In the United States, 75% of families have at least one child who participates in an organized sport. Early sport specialization continues to rise, with 12% of children under the age of 7 participating in sport in 2008, representing an increase from 9% in 1997. While a 3% increase over a decade may seem small, consider how many actual children this represents who are now participating in organized sport before the third grade. According to DeFiori et al., as of 2013, 60 million youth in the United States between the ages of 6 and 18 participate in an organized sport. Jayanthi et al. define early sports specialization as an intense year-round or greater than eight months training in a single sport with the exclusion of other sports. A recent review by Post et al. sought to examine the association between early sports specialization and risk of injury. While athletes exceeding greater than eight months of participation in a single sport experienced the greatest risk of injury, athletes who participated in greater than eight months of any organized sport were also at an increased risk of injury, though not as high as those who participated in only a single sport. Two other variables correlated with injury risk. One, participation in more hours of organized sport per week than the age of the child, i.e. a 12-year-old participating in more than 12 hours per week of organized sport, and risk number two, greater than 16 hours per week of organized sport in general. This would seem to call into question the current trend in youth sports for organized sports at an increasingly younger age. According to the National Collegiate Athletic Association, the NCAA, the belief that early sports specialization will lead to increased probability of playing at the next level is fallacious. In their 2018 report, high school males have a conversion rate, i.e. progressing from high school to collegiate sport, varying from 12.4% in lacrosse to 2.9% in wrestling. 
For females, the highest rate is 24.5% for ice hockey, while the lowest is 3.8% for basketball. It should be noted that even these numbers may be inflated, as many athletes in high school do not play for their school, but instead opt to play for travel teams that would not be accounted for in this data. If a child does have the ability to play in college, the average scholarship is only $10,400 per year, with many of the athletes in this report not receiving a scholarship at all. Conversely, it is not unheard of for parents to spend $1,000 per month on coaching, tournaments, travel, and food for their kids. Considering that these expenses can begin as early as age six, that seems to cancel out the average scholarship benefits fairly quickly. What is more interesting is the mounting evidence that those athletes who do go on to play in college are actually less likely to specialize early. Another study by Post et al. examined a cohort of athletes from a Division I university. Of their athletes, only 16.9% specialized by their freshman year and 41.1% by their senior year. This means that out of athletes at this university, over half were multi-sport athletes coming out of high school. Buckley et al. surveyed 3,090 high school, collegiate, and professional athletes in 2017 and found that respectively, 45.2%, 67.7%, and 45% of those athletes had quit another sport to focus solely on one. While there is a possibility that those athletes had only played one sport all along, it still appears that less than half of the professional athletes surveyed participated in only one sport. The Buckley paper presents other data that can be framed through the early sports specialization lens as well. The average age for professional and collegiate athletes to specialize was almost 15, while high school athletes specialized just before age 13. With high school athletes specializing almost two years earlier, it is easy to hypothesize that this early specialization could lead to an increased risk of burnout in the sport. In this light, we may be exposing youth to a type of survivorship bias, where only those who do not get injured or burn out survive to make it to the next level. Consider, how many excellent 12-year-old athletes end up becoming amazing 18-year-old athletes? Baseball pitchers who throw at a higher velocity early are at an increased risk of injury. Volleyball players who jumped higher were at double the risk of injury as they're not as talented peers. Coaches, parents, and peers could be placing these talented athletes under a Damoclean sword by continuing to showcase their success at an early age. Bell et al. performed a meta-analysis in 2018 examining the risk of injury associated with sports specialization. Compared to non-specialized athletes, highly specialized athletes were 1.81 times more likely to suffer an injury. In layman's terms, specialized athletes were almost twice as likely to get injured as athletes who did not specialize. McGuin et al. conducted a prospective study on the association of specialization and injury risk in a cohort of over 1,500 high school athletes. Those who were either moderately or highly specialized were at an increased risk of suffering a lower extremity injury than their less specialized peers. It is therefore difficult to advocate for youth training to become the best on the field at a very young age, when research increasingly suggests that their time on the field may actually be more limited due to injury. Quite possibly, taking baseball players, swimmers, volleyball players off the field, out of pools, and off the court and getting them in the gym can make them better athletes. Post et al. showed that highly specialized athletes were more likely to report an injury of any kind in the previous year compared to their less specialized peers. O'Kane et al. demonstrated that among risk factors for female soccer players sustaining a lower extremity injury, playing on more than one soccer team increased the risk of injury by 2.5, while participating in multiple physical activities decreased the risk by 61%. This has also been demonstrated at the elite level. Rugg et al. examined 237 first-round NBA draft picks from 2008 to 2015. Of those athletes, 201, or 85%, had specialized into one sport by the time of high school. Among these specialized athletes, 42.8% had suffered one major injury compared to 25% in the non-specialized group. While this does not account for contact versus non-contact injuries, it still accounts for a significant difference. This means that athletes who were specialized had an over 50% increase in the likelihood of having suffered an injury. 
DeFiori et al. recently released a position statement on overuse injuries in youth sports with estimations that 45 to 54% of youth injuries are directly related to overuse, 68% in running, in fact. This likely means that the youth are not getting injured because of their sport, but multiple contributors to an overuse injury besides just participation in one sport. Overscheduling and under-recovery are also factors contributing to injury risk. Athletes who participate in more practices within 48 hours of competition and athletes getting less than six hours of sleep a night before a competition are also at increased risk. Similarly, athletes averaging less than eight hours of sleep are 1.7 times more likely to suffer an injury based on data from Molesky et al. We must emphasize that early sport specialization is disadvantageous for all sports, including those focused on resistance training. While there are no specific longitudinal studies looking at injury risk for youth powerlifting or weightlifting, we must assume from a general heuristic that even these athletes need variability in sport. While we are strongly advocating that youth athletes need to resistance train, this is not all they need to do to become a well-rounded, resilient athlete. A 2019 study by Bush et al. looked at American weightlifters and found that 75.9% of those surveyed did not specialize before the age of 21. It was a retrospective study with only 141 athletes submitting, so it's not without flaws. However, the odds ratio for a youth specialization in weightlifting versus non-specialized athletes was 23.9. Even on the low end of that confidence interval, youth specializing in weightlifting were over four times as likely as their non-specialized peers to have sustained an injury. Psychological burnout. These overuse injuries do not solely manifest in physical form either. Psychological burnout is another repercussion of the movement towards early sports specialization. Psychological burnout as it relates to sport has been defined as 1. Sports-related exhaustion or persistent fatigue related to overtaxing in sport. 2. Sports-related cynicism, indifference or distal attitudes towards sports. 3. Feelings of inadequacy, perception of not performing as well as one used to. Similar to physical overuse injuries described above, psychological burnout correlates with the amount of time athletes participate in sport, but also with the expectation of sport. This introduces the concepts of expectations and the goal of sports participation. Many parents view early specialization as a means to increase the likelihood of their child progressing to the collegiate or professional level of sport. These performance-based goals are based on demonstrating normative competence, ergo superiority or winning, and have been shown to increase the likelihood of athletes suffering burnout. Padaki et al. sought to quantify the influence of parents on early sports specialization in 2017. When queried, 20.4% of the parents in their cohort had hopes of their child playing at the professional level, and 36.4% hoped that they would play at the collegiate level. These parental expectations often translate into increased pressure on the youth. In this cohort, the average age of the athlete was just under 14 years old, with 72% already suffering an overuse injury and 16.6% already having undergone surgery. The psychological state of an athlete can also influence physical injury risk. Athletes often feel pressure to perform with perfection. This may involve winning or coaches demanding a specific pattern of movement or skill execution. Perfectionism is defined as striving for a flawless performance and setting exceedingly high standards of performance, accompanied by tendencies for overly critical evaluations of one's behavior. Madigan et al. looked at the association between perfectionism and risk of injury in junior athletes and found that the likelihood of sustaining an injury was increased by over two times for each one standard deviation increase in perfectionistic concerns. Once again, psychological dispositions can manifest as increased risk of physical injuries in the athlete. Instead of taking a perfectionist approach, Sorkilla et al. recommended setting goals directed towards mastery, that is, goals primarily motivated by improvement or mastering a task. Athletes who are more mastery-driven are likely demonstrating adaptive behaviors, persisting in the face of failure, and exhibiting more positive emotions than those who are strictly performance-oriented. Growth and Injury Risk Childhood and adolescence is a time of rapid growth and development. The structural integrity of physiological structures can be affected during periods of rapid growth. 
Stress only has a positive or negative connotation when viewed through the lens of adaptation it's inducing, which introduces some nuance to the concept of load in an athlete's training. While progressive loading generally elicits positive adaptations, the repetitive loading typically seen in early sports specialization can cause adverse adaptations. This is still context-specific, however. For example, the humeral head retroversion typically seen as advantageous in the youth-throwing athlete is caused by essentially the same mechanism as seen with the development of cam impingement in youth hockey players. That being said, Wilhelm et al. surveyed 102 professional baseball pitchers, and those who specialized early were twice as likely to have suffered a serious injury than their non-specialized peers. What is more interesting is that more specialized cohorts specialized at just 8.9 years of age. In the context of individual sports, there does appear to be a correlation between periods of rapid growth and increased risk of injury. Red et al. demonstrated that recent increases in body mass index, leg length, and stature were correlated with injury rates in youth soccer players, particularly those among the 14 to 15 year old age cohort. Kemper et al. demonstrated quantifiable variables correlating with an increased risk of injury in youth soccer players. These were present in less than 7% of athletes 11 to 16 years old and less than 5% in athletes over the age of 16. These variables included growing greater than 0.6 centimeters, increasing BMI greater than 0.3 kilograms per meter squared, or presenting with a body fat less than 7%. So far, we have discussed the current state of affairs in youth sport, discussed the prevalence and problems of early sports specialization, as well as the unique psychological and biological considerations with respect to injury risk in the youth athlete. In the next part of the series, we will dive into the long-term athletic developmental model. Okay, Derek, uh, just state your your name, your job title, and then... Uh, what you do at Barbell Medicine. I'm Derek Miles. I am a physical therapist at Stanford Children's Hospital. I am part of the pain and rehab team at Barbell Medicine. Very cool. All right. So Derek, this podcast and the next podcast that we release with you is going to be about your resistance training for the youth population series. So we're going to try to attack attack this piecemeal. So let's start off. This is uh, the part one. Basically, we're kind of talking about the current state of affairs and that, you know, in reading this, because I did this narration, hopefully didn't put people to sleep. (laughs) It seemed uh, very clear to me that the, there's a lot of evidence suggesting that early sports specialization is bad. So can you, for the listeners at home, talk about what early specialization is and what's your take on the current evidence for this in uh, athletic populations? Well, early specialization is, of course, just going into one sport as a youth. And there is a lot of evidence, even if you look at like injury rate studies, that you know, we get caught up on biomechanics or movement and the biggest risk factor seems to be the sport you play and having kids go into it too early or youth go into just one sport too early, you you tend to get overly developed in certain areas and increase your risk of injury. And there is some evidence we have that advocates for really holding off on that until later in life. And Part of the whole thing is I think we have this paradigm of people wanting to get ahead. And, you know, if you start just one sport at the age of 12, then you should be ahead of your peers that start at the age of 15. Whereas really what it shows is you may get good at the motor patterns of that sport, but really being more athletic than your peers is having a diverse array of solutions to problems instead of just one repetitive right and wrong way of doing things. Yeah. I actually kind of talk about this as a, the diverse physical 401k 
<laughs> like you're trying to you're, you're trying to develop this and, and and just staying on this 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 kind of topic of sports specialization uh, in your your specific article you're addressing the youth population so typically those uh, high school age and, and younger um, maybe even bleeding into the first few years of college but everything else we kind of talk about is just being adult level training uh, on the topic of adult spe- uh, specialization do you think the same principle holds that you would want to develop this kind of wide array of physical skills and proficiency in different motor tasks prior to specialization? Do you think that that holds uh, into adulthood? I, I think essentially it comes down to when we talk about early specialization or even youth training, if you're untrained and you, so your starting point for any training paradigm is zero, you're probably better off having a diverse array than just like settling into just one thing. That being said, like I think you could make a case in the adult population that most people have at least some prior physical activity capabilities. So it may not be as imperative as what I would advocate for in the youth population. Sure. Yeah. Somebody coming with a, a extensive background in different recreational or formalized pursuits uh, in sport probably has this kind of broader base of physical development, so to speak. But uh, alternatively, you know, we get these people all the time at our seminars who effectively, they just started lifting weights as an adult and they don't really have uh, an athletic background, um, you know, outside of maybe like, you know, T-ball or like, you know, Pop Warner football or something like that, which there's something to be said about that exposure and how that like carries over later in life. But but it's not like these people in general are like, yeah, you know, uh, on the weekends I go for these long bike rides and I am active in all these other, you know, physical pursuits as an adult. And I just started lifting weights rather it's, I didn't do anything before I was basically sedentary and now I'm lifting weights for health related purposes. And so I, I think in that situation, it, it sounds like you're arguing for maybe a, uh, a, a, a broader variety of movement uh, to, in that, in the, in the adults as well, just to kind of, again, give people these, these skills compared to if they had already had that wider variety of, of skills. Well, I, I would certainly advocate for that. And I think sometimes we get hooked on, I'm going to go try this new thing. And even if that new thing is resistance training and, you know, squat bench deadlift for life. And we forget that there's like literally hundreds of thousands of different exercise variations and sometimes having some variety in that programming is good for us especially uh, i would argue the more novice we are yep yep i would be on board with that especially and we'll talk about this more in the second part from an adherence and enjoyability standpoint and then also just you know if you don't actually have a if you're not a strength athlete meaning that you're not actually going you're registering and competing for like an organized strength sport powerlifting weightlifting strongman crossfit etc uh there's really no need to specialize in in this, you know, high uh, and, and compromise your training in order to do so. Um, effectively, we'd almost want you to, to say, you know, I'm okay with taking five, you know, a five or ten percent hit on my one RM squat that I can so I can become proficient in three different variations of the squat because having that wider like uh, base of efficiency it may be helpful in just you know pursuits in life so to speak. At least that's, that's my kind of take on it. Oh, I would definitely agree with that. And I think you could even make a case that sometimes we're our own worst enemy when we start really advocating for resistance training and that we emphasize one RMs or absolute weight moved so much that we actually detract away from some of the athletic capability and the sport the athletes choosing to play. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that's super interesting actually, in a way, it's something that we talk about during our programming lecture 
Uh, when you yeah. say when you say detract, uh, can you be more specific there as far as what you mean? By well, that? I think if you're trying to run somebody on a high volume resistance training program right in the peak of their season, especially like the easy example would be a college athlete. Like if it's a fall sport athlete, they're in peak season and they have finals coming up and they have all this external stress. And we're sitting here talking about, you know, running three sets of 10 at RPE eight, because we really need to increase some volume. You know, it's, we're not being smart with our programming. And in the same regard, even that athlete likely has no business maxing out in that period in their programming, just because they're giving their maximum effort to the field and to their academic performance. Yeah. Or like maxing out during finals week or, uh, something, something like that. It's just usually, it's not good planning. Um, okay. Let's, let's back up a little bit. So you start this article off with kind of like, uh, the current state of things, just like mm-hmm. a scoping overview of like, all right, these are all these these national and international organizations recommendations for actual uh, resistance training in the youth population. What can you summarize those just for the the listeners at home, especially if they have kids, they're going to be super geeked on this. Like, hey, <laughs> should my kid be resistance training or not? Well, we constantly battle this dogma of, you know, resistance training stunts your growth or it increases your risk of injury. And it's been awesome in the past 10, 15 years because we have had some large organizations come out and say it's perfectly safe. So the the one that's awesome in the American format is the American Academy of Pediatrics actually released a position statement in 2008 saying it should be an essential component of preparatory training for aspiring athletes. And I think coming out and having a large organization or probably the preeminent organization focused on child health and stating that is pretty big. But, you know, it's we're 10 years past that. And it seems like whenever we start talking about youth resistance training, the thing we always butt up against is it's going to stunt your growth. Yep. Yeah, it's actually interesting in a way. Uh, There's a guy. His name is Avery uh, Fagenbaum. It, yep. We don't have the same name, but every time that I've gone to a strength conference, I think people have like a <laughs> either subconsciously replaced his last name with mine or vice versa. They're like, "Oh, you're you're related to Avery." I'm like, "No, no, we spell it differently. It's a good last name, but uh, it's different." <laughs> yeah, he, Avery is uh, heavily cited throughout this piece. Yeah, so he's he's put out a number of different position statements, or been the lead author for a number of different position statements by the National Strength and Conditioning Association, the American College of Sports Medicine, and some of their uh, cohorts. And and again, I cannot stress this enough that resistance training is indicated for young individuals. Uh, it's as far as it's being safe, being effective, and then ultimately this manifests in the 2018 Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans, where they actually recommend as like on a population level recommendation that uh, uh, the youth should engage in resistance training three times per week, uh, which, which shouldn't be misinterpreted though. It's like, yeah, they need to squat bench deadlift up to a max three times a week. That's not what they're saying, but engaging in regular structured resistance training provided that they're uh, emotionally mature enough to do so. uh, And they want to do that, (laughs) you know, should be, should be, should be uh, the, the recommendation, I think. Well, I think you also have to look at it from trying to make sure that we do have programs in place just to increase overall physical activity. I mean, to the next layer would be we are having a bit of a epidemic as much as I don't necessarily want to use that word for physical inactivity in in the entire population. And the sooner we can instill things that start facilitating a desire to be active, the longer those behaviors tend to last. 
And we likely miss a lot of time by delaying when we really start advocating for being active um, until high school, because that's when most kids will be their first exposure to a weight room if they're lucky. Whereas the evidence really says we should be starting younger than that. And it, once again, it doesn't have to be a squat bench deadlift. Like there are hundreds of thousands of ways to get some external load that don't involve, you know, hiring a bunch of coaches and going out performing sports specialization drills. Yep. Yeah. Now, as far as sports specialization goes, you know, it, one of the big risks that you you just, you know, kind of rattle on about, and we won't, you know, we'll, we'll leave that to uh, to the article because people can read all the stats and everything else that's that's included there. Um, But the increased risk of injury seems to be one of the bigger kind of issues there. Meaning that if you specialize earlier on that you run a risk for increased injury, although also if you participate in athletics too much, just number of hours per week, that also seems to be kind of like an independent risk factor. And, and I think conceptually this makes sense. Uh, most so, so for example, injury risk is usually reported as injuries per thousand hours of participation. And so if you're in, if you're participating in more hours, then even if the injury risk or injury rate rather is rather, is rather low for whatever activity you're doing, you're still doing more hours, which increases your risk compared to if you were doing less. Uh, would you, would you, would you say that there's kind of like this, I don't know, inverted U with respect to like resistance training or, or, or sports participation volume or participation hours and injury risk? Meaning that if you're low, like really low injury or, or participation rate, then you have a higher injury risk. And if you have a very high participation rate, <laughs> then it goes up as well. Do you, does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think you could say that. I think there's layers to it because it really is if you had that across a spectrum of sports, I think your U would have a lower trough in it. Um, but the more it's just one sport repetitively over and over and over again, the higher the likelihood of issue comes up. And you know, the analogy I typically make is we don't take a 12-year-old and tell them they're only going to learn math. And we would think that kind of schooling is not – intelligent at all because we realize they need science math reading you know different subject matters but we take kids in sport we say well you're going to be a baseball player and we think about it like none of us would look at a 14 year old and call him an engineer at that point he's just a student and in the same token we probably should be looking at 14 year olds and only calling them baseball players we should be really focused on calling them athletes first yep yeah that makes sense uh so the next element of this first this first article is about psychological burnout, which is something I think we kind of put on the back burner when it comes to early specialization, just conceptually. Because again, you're thinking like, okay, injury risk that, you know, it's physical, you can see it or diagnose it or something, you know, it's more tangible in a way than this psychological burnout. And I thought it was super interesting the way that psychological burnout is defined. So you give these like three criteria or three different types of burnout. One is uh, the sports-related exhaustion. So you have this persistent fatigue related to overtaxing in the sport, sports-related cynicism, this indifference or distal attitudes towards sports or feelings of inadequacy, uh, like you're not performing as well as one used to. Uh, it's funny because I, I, the second one, the sports-related cynicism, I call that the Baraki factor because <laughs> he... <laughs> <laughs> because he, it seems like sometimes, you know, when he's uh, not really training for anything and, and or maybe he's, uh, you know, trying to come back from uh, from a period where, where training was less important. He, tr- he This is like one of his strategies to 
not make himself so focused on the outcome, but rather on the process, which uh, we'll discuss in the next podcast. So with the psychological burnout, I mean, do you see this, like how often, it, like do you see this in your, in your patient population or how common is it? You know, what do you, what do you think? Well, I think it's important to ask kids, you know, is this still fun for you? And if the answer is no, that's fine. Like there, there's other things you can go do. And you see these kids who will have practice five days a week and then a tournament on the weekend where they're driving four hours away. And, you know, at some point they start getting burnout and not wanting to do it as much. And back to the like athlete versus specialist side of things, like, if your entire identity is consumed in being a baseball player or a soccer player, and all of a sudden that stops being fun to you as a youth, that really is a hit on what your identity is as a person. Whereas like, if you realize like, you know, soccer is not as fun anymore. Let me go play badminton or whatever sport of choosing. And, you know, you have some options there to really come out of it. And on top of that, like we don't think about the fact of we often, these days have our kids in very structured programs early on. And a lot of the coaching isn't necessarily like teaching an athlete how to train or teaching an athlete how to make the decision process for their own type of physical development. It's more of a structured, this is what we're going to do next. This is what we're going to do next. And I think we see a lot of athletes that once they stop being in sport later in life, that they don't know how to program for themselves because they've just gotten used to having that structure there the entire time. Yep. Yeah. They, 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 they haven't, uh, figured out the process, the, the, uh, procedural knowledge so to speak of like how to, how to do this sort of thing. Well, you know, some parents at home are going to be saying, so you're saying I shouldn't push my kid to do something they don't want to do, you know, cause, cause that's going to wax and wane. Right. And there may be different factors that, uh, that go into that. You know, I don't want to go play baseball, you know, for instance, a kid might say if they're, having a, an interpersonal relation uh, issue with uh, somebody either on the coaching staff or on the, on the team, you know, but they may not, they may still actually like the game. Um, so, I mean, where do you draw the line between like, all right, you got to push your kid uh, or put uh, or, or, or encourage the youth athletes that you're working with to continue to participate in a sport that maybe is not always rose, roses and sunshine versus mm, maybe we should chart a different course here. Well, I think if I'm getting involved in the conversation, it's likely because an athlete's had an injury and there it really is making it just an open conversation. And there's not one specific point where, okay, it's time to go somewhere else. It has to be like, well, these factors are in place and, you know, the kid isn't enjoying the sport anymore. They've now suffered three injuries by the age of 16. Maybe we can start looking for other things where they're going to, enjoy that. But, you know, to the parent side of it, I think some of it is like the old GI Joe thing, like knowing it's half the battle. And like, if, if you're aware of the fact that like, maybe it's not about you facilitating your kid being the best in the sport of possibly your choosing and not theirs. And I think sometimes we have a little bit of sunk cost fallacy to where a parent and an athlete has spent so much time in just one sport that it's hard to walk away and say, maybe we should go try something else. And it's, it's not an easy decision, but the more you're aware that, Hey, these factors may be playing in my decision-making process. I, I think the easier it is to wait if it should, if a decision should go one way or another. Yep. Now a lot of this stuff is actually discussed in the book, uh, range by, uh, uh Epstein. And so, 
particularly in the, in this context. So would recommend uh, if you got a kiddo or somebody who's going to be getting involved in sports, uh, I would definitely recommend reading that in addition to just a general, it's a good read. So yeah, it's uh, an excellent book. <laughs> the last thing I want to talk about uh, here on this first part is has to do with um, a study that you you cited by Kemper et al. Um, this is basically on the quantifiable variables that are associated with increased risk of injury in uh, youth soccer players. So like if they grew greater than 0.6 centimeters or if their BMI went up by 0.3 centi- uh, cu- uh, kilograms per meter squared or if their body fat was very low. Um, it sounds like if they're going through a growth spurt or have recently experienced a growth spurt that this puts the them at, at a higher risk of injury. What, what do you make of that? And do you have any sort of explanatory explanation that like makes that, uh, I guess makes it, makes it make sense for lack of a better word. Um, when we're thinking about it. Well, I think obviously this is one of those, um, there's nuance to it, but yeah, that's ding the bell. Um, but really, we have some evidence that structures grow at different rates as far as, especially in jumping athletes, like muscle, tendon, and bone tend to develop at a little bit different rate. And so if you're growing all at once, you may get some more discongruency out of this and you know symptoms may come on. But I also think you can kind of spin it the other way and say, like, this is a natural phenomenon. Like, this is part of growing. So it, it isn't an end of the world injury. And we know how to address that. We, especially like in regards to the jumping example, like once again, it comes back to really getting on some good strengthening programs. But I also think from a coaching standpoint, it's something to be aware of. If you have an athlete who, you know, is appreciably grown or or in size and to say, maybe we don't need to grind this person quite as hard for a little while. Now, the issue of course being going back to the psychological burnout side of it and the desire to win at 12. And I I think sometimes we all see these scenarios pop out on social media where the parent gets obsessed with their kid winning a tournament at the age of 12. And we all look at it and we're like, well, that's idiotic. But then you see it when it's your kid. And I think sometimes it's harder to differentiate what is a good decision versus what is a poor decision on how hard to push and how hard to regulate back. And if we're in this sports specialization camp to where coaches are incentivized to win because you have to be part of the best academy or part of the best travel ball team, then as soon as the incentive is for victory over player development and long-term health of athletes, I think especially in the youth population, we've flipped our goals towards a non-ideal outcome. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I also had this thought that you know, effectively, when when somebody's going through these growth spurts, uh, like you said, there's a uh, things grow at different rates. So you have all this new tissue that's cropping up in different areas at different times. And so the first element here is like this new tissue may not be as adapted to the training load, practice load, you know, workload overall than the previous tissue because it's uh, new, it's fresh, it's a freshie. Uh, so there's there's that one component to it, and then so you may need some more time to kind of run it in <laughs> to to get that capacity up to uh, up to snuff. And then the second part is uh, the coordination can suffer during these periods of time, and then immediately after because um, effectively it's a new body uh, that the person is learning to work with. So that wide variety of skills does set them up for 
you know, more adaptability, quote unquote, but at the same time, they're going to need time to again, run that in and, uh, and be able to, to use that as efficiently as they, they previously were. Well, and I think to your point there, this kind of gets back at the need for some of this variability in training, because as you start developing or growing and developing these new motor patterns, like they have to be drilled in as though it is a new exposure because you're dealing with basically a new system. And I, I really think especially that's why programs like the FIFA 11, which is a injury risk reduction program for knee injury and soccer athletes has really shown some efficacy because it is something to where you're just doing some basic landing drills. You're doing basic change of direction activities and it doesn't have to be anything, you know, like over the top complicated. It's this whole, no athletes ever been too good at the basics mantra. And we need to make sure there is some basic fundamental programming as part of whatever we're putting in for an athlete. And you would recommend resistance training as part of that basic fundamental programming. That is a fundamental component. Perfect. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for joining us here on part one of the youth and resistance training series. Thank you. This article was written by Dr. Derek Miles. It was edited by Dr. Austin Baraki and Dr. Michael Ray. For the full text version, head over to our website, barbellmedicine.com. The link is in the description below. I want to thank you guys for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're listening to this on iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast. And we want to thank you guys again for listening. Couldn't do it without you. See you next time. credit card bill. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.